All right, so this is part two of the topic, understanding the core of conflict in marriage. So part one, if you haven't gone through that, please check that. That lays down some essential foundations for us to start to get into this potentially difficult topic. Okay, so the the question that I want to ask here as we continue is, what is Adam's sinfulness in response to Satan? And how do we see this bear out in real life? So, what we first covered was, why did Satan pick Eve first? And the conclusion that we kind of walked through in the text was, it's likely she was, in fact, more gullible and more deceptive, able to be deceived. The second one was, well, what's the nature of that attack vector? And we saw at the core of it was a temptation to be like God. And so, we, we want to kind of like take a look more deeply, and there's more details in that, but certainly w- there was Adam's part in this. It wasn't just Eve who ate of the apple. So, um, we, we see this gullibility, however, reveals itself in the modern world and can be interpreted in a desire to be able to determine between good and evil as a form of judgment, criticality, and the ability to assign unspoken unproven and potentially wrong motives to the husband. I know you did this because you are thinking this, because you intended that. And it isn't and there does seem to be, and this is one of the things that's fascinating about studying the word of God, is God's truth is always way ahead of secular proven truth. Right? It's going to be way ahead. But eventually those in the secular world who desire to uncover the truth and genuinely look at it will inevitably reconfirm God's truth. And that's very exciting to see that. But it also suggests in areas where we're unsure, it's a better bet to bet on Scripture and God's Word. And many people, even in the church, will ignore that because it takes work to do this. So now we understand the nature of this. And so there's judgment and being critical. And and so what is the, the the thing that Eve ultimately justifies to herself? And this is important because of a couple of ways. This is sort of the way that we get deceived and we deceive ourselves, is we may hear a temptation at first. So in this case, it's to be like God and to know the difference between good and evil. But like in any temptation where you're, you're seduced into it, you, you've bought into that end result, to be like God. But Inside you know enough, well, I shouldn't be like God. So you find ways to self-justify yourself. That is where the ultimate deception is. We deceive ourselves, and then ultimately we use those forms of deceiving ourselves to convince somebody else to justify our self-justification. So what are the ways that Eve justifies herself to go ahead and eat the fruits and ultimately use those same things upon Adam? And we'll kind of take a look and see how does that work on Adam. The three are, the tree was good for food. The second was, it was a delight to the eyes. And the third is, to make one wise. So let's take up the first one. The tree was good for food. So, on the surface, we could say, well, there's a desire for pragmatism for survival. Well, I need food. Its purpose is for food. And and that could be something that resonates with man and female. In fact, in Luke 4.3, Satan tempts Jesus with a similar version, but it's not the same. In it, the devil says, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
but he, he he's getting at sort of Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting or for forty days. So he's he's hungry, and so it's kind of it, it, it's kind of getting at at that. But she's not starving. It's just it's good for food. There's a pragmatism, but a taste. There's a sensuality to this for the food. She's not hungry. It's it's slightly different. And, and I will go in, in a separate reason why that attack vector upon Jesus for his hunger is relevant to all men and all women, but, but there's something specific about that that we can take from that in another time. The second was the delight to the eyes. So, similar thing. It's beauty and aesthetics. Food and the beauty and aesthetics. And I, and I, I caution to make overly broad generalizations, but, but I do feel... It is worth being on the lookout for its truth. And this is an example of social media. The jokes abound about who is the most likely to post pictures of food and other things that are sort of beautiful on social media. And I'll say Instagram is like a good example of something that's going to tap into foodieism and aesthetics and beauty and sharing it. And it's disproportionately women. And and now this is moving away from the text, and this is the, the challenge and why, you know, having a strong system, systematic understanding of the Bible then allows you to just kind of like step into examining the culture. And it's harder to make very precise um, one-to-one correlations from the Scripture to the world, and it can be dangerous to do so, but doing so with that spirit, if we go back to what we covered in the last episode, that ultimately this discernment is done through the spirit. That spirit is informed and strengthened, and in fact, it is granted to us through faith, through the word. But it is more than just taking the text and looking for it. It literally, when we are in the word and understand it systematically, our spirit is able to discern something. And that might not be a scientific way to, you know, point this out. It's not provable. It's not a scientific method that we can apply. But when your spirit is really conforming to what God's word says, such that you're not conforming to the word, I think we can start to see some of these truths. And I would say that we are seeing the secular world acknowledging that social media, in which there's other types of social media, such as bullying and words and kind of like trolling, but there's a fair amount around the aesthetics of what delights the eye and food and its tastiness that disproportionately affects teenage girls. And the last one is to make one wise. So it goes back to reaffirming desire to be a god. So now we understand how she has deceived herself and then applies these things to Adam, certainly. But I don't think these arguments necessarily were the reason why Adam sinned. And my reasoning is, and here we're we're guessing because we don't see it in the text. The text says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And there's this, this pause between he gave it to her and he ate. And I don't think it just said he gave it to her and he immediately ate. I think it's a reasonable expectation that he too, like Eve, who was deemed by Satan less deceptible, he probably said, oh, that's, God said not to do this. God said, don't, don't, don't do this. Um, but nevertheless, she still persuaded him. It's not the reasons, because these reasons could work. 
you could say maybe Satan could have gone to Adam directly, but we know he didn't. So to me, if he went to Eve, he did it in large part because she was more susceptible. But with the nature of his craftiness, he might have also thought he got a twofer. I can reach Adam through Eve because his sin is he will relent, disobey God to please a woman, in this case, his wife. To me, this seems to make sense if we pull out in the nature of man's weakness to women. Whether it's David and Bathsheba, Proverbs warning again and again of succumbing to the woman of seduction, it seems like in the secular world, we actually see that women are able to exert a form of influence over man and a woman, a wife over the husband through this. And I, I don't know what was that nature. Maybe she cried. Maybe she tempted him with sex. Maybe she just kept relenting over and over. And eventually he was like, you know what? Fine. It's, I'm just going to succumb to this. I'm just going to relent. We don't know exactly what happened, but, but it is clear to me at least, she was the agent of change, and he, his sin, was he gave up defending the faith. So I want to pause there and just see, does that often happen also in, in, in this relationship? You know, and, and, and I pull back, and I think we'll spend some time, you know, um, reflecting on this, but I think to sort of see who holds the balance of 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 power generally when it comes to the spiritual life. We hear anecdotally more so, I would think, at least the famous ones, of a, a woman who is faithful and eventually the man t- comes. And, and again, I don't have scientific proof, less so of the man and the woman is opposed to God and is not a Christian converting. Certainly it happens. It's not to say it never happens, but the purpose of this is to start to to evaluate, oh gosh, are there some trends here in the world and more importantly in the marriage of what could be that vector of attack and weakness. So let's go on further because God, of course, discovers this, casts them out, and curses them. So a question to ask on the text is, does God's curse upon Adam and Eve reveal sources of conflict that will emerge between them and sin. And these are things that need to be spiritually discerned. So through reading of this text and trying to expose it with with some, you know, conjecture and get manifested in reality. This is a crux. So we'll see the curse. Many will use the one from the CEV and say, to God said to Eve, but you will still desire your husband and he will rule over you. And that seems to fit a narrative of, oh, well, your curse is you will just have this unrequited desire and devotion for your husband, and he just will reject it. And it's, isn't that just so sad? He will never demonstrate the same love that you have for him, and, and that is your punishment. And that fits this narrative, and people will readily accept, oh, that's the nature of women. They're just so loving and giving, and that will be your curse because you'll desire it, and it will not be returned. But that's actually not true. That's not what other uh, interpretations say. And I will actually say 
that this one, this narrative of just this unending love and desire for a husband that's unrequited is a lie. What other interpret other um, translations such as the ESV and King James have in L- NLT, which I'm pulling from. These are two of them. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You will be against your husband. And it'll say, you desire to control your husband. So how do we get there? And why do I believe that's a stronger interpretation? And then we'll go into seeing, well, do we believe that? So one question is, is there another place in the Bible with similar context, with the same Hebrew used, that is sort of under debate. Is it desire because unrequited love, or is it desire to control your husband? And in fact, one of the ways that's good context is if it's in the same book, presumably the same author. And in fact, it is in Genesis 4-7. So, contextually within the Bible, it's the same. It's the next, it's the next chapter. We're in 3-6-16, and now we're in Genesis 4-7. And then... God is using it to talk about the relationship between two parties. Party A is desiring party B. So, if we looked at the text, we could kind of see, is that same word showing a relationship between two people? And we're comparing, is this desire, this unrequited desired love, or is it control? So, what is Genesis 4-7? Genesis 4-7 says, it's God speaking, and he's speaking to Cain. You'll be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin, that's party A, is crouching at the door, eager to control you. That eager to control you is the same Hebrew word as the desire of Eve. But you must subdue it and be its master, is his command to Cain. Eager to control you. Sin and Cain, that is the comparable a coupling, so to speak, around the desire. So, does it make sense that it's this unrequited loving that sin has for Cain? Or is it this control, the takeover in, in, in um, uh, Cain? And I think it's clearly the case it's the latter. It is about control. In the same way that sin ultimately took over Cain. That's not awesome. And yet, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. If we choose to turn away from things that are uncomfortable, we may miss the truth. What's interesting is I read a book, I, I, can't, I don't remember the reference, and I don't think it's that important, where secular psychologists and sociologists were doing a sampling of marriages and found the same thing, that it was control. Specifically, they described it as shame as the source of conflict. And control in the way they describe it has many, many flavors. It's crying, it's anger, it's outbursts, it's criticism, it's mothering, it's gossip, it's false praise, it's just random manipulation, it's withholding of intimacy. All of these are different forms of control. And so I would say, is there some truth in that? That by embracing that truth, and redeeming it in a Christ-like manner can actually be freeing. That's the end goal. It's not to prove it's right. It's not to bash one group over another. But if there's truth, 
What does it gain to turn one's head, turn one's eyes away from it because we don't like it? Now, the counter-argument would be men also do this. Men also are controlling. And I think it's true, there are some controlling, but, but, but I'll argue that I don't think it's quite, it's quite, the, quite the same. And I'll say that it's actually what we believe is control is actually this rule over. And I'll talk about that in a moment. So let's go back to, can we justify Adam's core um, sin? It's not the curse, it's the sin, which is capitulation of control in the sin. We aren't going to spend much time in terms of his curse. We, we, we can, but it's very, very quick. His is about sort of externally facing. It's not about the relationship. It's, it's more about the nature and the burden of work. And, and that's something that we can kind of try to, try to dig into that a little bit uh, later. But I think the one that it's about, the actual relationship, starts with Eve. So, let's take a look. It says, however, even though she will try to control, he shall rule over her. So one could say, well, doesn't that go against our original statement, which is Adam's real sin? Was he capitulated to Eve? She was able to conjole him to to change his mind. So it doesn't mean that, you know, how can that be possible if he actually will rule over her? And I'll say they're, they're different. The sin, and they stand, and they can coexist. The sin by Adam, his capitulation was a capitulation to God's word. He failed to stand in defense and obey God's word. And I think that continues to this day. If a woman were to cajole a man to disobey God's word, and it can come in different ways, I think the man will lose. Far more often than if it's reversed. It certainly will happen. It certainly does. I'm not saying these are absolutes and they don't apply or cross the way, but it, it, it is, I think, true. And then the counterpart is this rule over can be very sinful, but it's a counter control. It's to counter the sense of being controlled. And so it's a desire to be freed from shame and to maintain independence. And granted, some of those can be physical, can be very sinful. There's physical abuse, not accepted. Um, using one's power, asymmetries at work, for example, can also be in, somewhere in there. So those are not good. But we still have to acknowledge that within a relationship between a man and a woman, a woman's primary sin will be controlling, desiring to control, finding ways to control the husband. And the man will be either, and they can happen both, they can coexist, will be to move away from God and then exert a desire to regain control and rule over it. And that's, of course, a source of conflict. When you have two people are trying to control and one's resisting the control, that is conflict. So, I want to end on this. I think there's much in here. But I think it's fair to ask how we got to this point. We try to go through closely. But is there a dynamic of that at home? Is that dynamic of deception with those means of deception and then ultimately a desire to control, manipulate, present in your relations? Or perhaps... 
you see it externally in the world and it's helping you understand what's going on with the culture. But it's really the best that you'll get out of this is to have an honest meditation and a discussion within the word. Does this exist? Does that form of deception exist? And does it exist in terms of the forms of control and of by the wife of the husband? And the husband is reacting to that and sinning in his own ways and in many ways pulling from God. This stuff gets a lot deeper. It might get even more uncomfortable because we are talking about sin and differences and whenever you're making generalizations. I think the positive way to look at that is, does this give the space to ask, is this true? If it's true now, how do we repair it? If it's not and you've been blessed and it never happens, how do you prevent it from incurring? Because at the end of the day, if we believe that God's will will eventually show itself, His truth reveals itself, then I would argue eventually it's just inevitable. These are hard to accept. And I think I want to close by talking about the nature of the culture. And that's often the thing that gets in the way. And we can just use that example where the culture, even infiltrated within the church, will try to say, oh, well, women just have this unrequited love and they just need to be loved back the way that they want instead of us men being dominating and ruling over. But we see it's not the case. And that should open, hopefully, your eyes that even the church, when it comes to these cultural topics, may be lying to you. But when you work with God's Word and you really wrestle with it and you acknowledge that it will expose deeper sins than, than you may even want to be comfortable that actually it's God's grace. And in that way, we can live accordance to Him.